This is the Santita Jackson Show. Everybody, welcome to the Santita Jackson Show. Not to worry, I'll be up on Facebook and YouTube shortly as soon as we work out some of these kinks. I am Santita Jackson coming to you from WCPT, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station. Getting a little feedback, but we're going to work that out. Hey, everybody, call us at 773-763-9278. We've got this January 26th mayoral debate. We're going to be giving away tickets, so you got to keep on listening. On the Santita Jackson Show, I've got a pair of tickets to give away to you today. Call me at 773-763-9278. I want to know who you got in this mayoral debate. Is it Brandon Johnson? Is it Mayor Lightfoot? Is it Shui Garcia? Is it Sophia King? Is it Jamal Green? Is it, is it, is it Willie? Reverend Dr. Willie, absolutely, he has got such strong ties in the black community. Um, just we're wondering who's going to, will we have a runoff? Will we have a runoff? Will we not? Um, if we have a runoff, who do you think will be in it? What is going to happen? It's hard to believe it's been four years, and what a whirlwind four years Mayor Lightfoot has had. Thank you for coming to the to the Push XL breakfast yesterday, Mayor Lightfoot, and Robin Kelly, and Bobby Rush, and Danny Davis, who's been walking uh, Congressman Jonathan Jackson through Congress. Thank you so much, Congressman Davis. And my girl, uh, that's right, Dahlia Ramirez, a congresswoman from here in Chicago, first Latina, who was elected from the Midwest in the history of the United States. And Aaron and oh, all the folks who were there, so many wonderful people, so many young people. So wonderful seeing everybody there yesterday. And thank you for supporting Push XL. So we've got a lot to talk about today. We're going to be talking about, did you see the Buccaneers game last night? Uh, the Cowboys and the Buccaneers. The Buccaneers lost. People are wondering now if Tom Brady's going to retire. But there was something else that happened. You saw a horrific injury. Um, and you saw Russell Gage, who plays for the Bucks, twitching on the ground. He, his head was bent over just horribly. And you saw him twitching on the ground. And it brings back to mind, brings back to the fore, what happens with these with these NFL players and pensions and health care and injuries, they're, they're suing the NFL now because they need, they need compensation and they need health care like veterans need health care. I mean, they talk about the NFL veterans. If you know anyone who's played in the NFL, they have sustained some lifelong injury. That's just the reality. So when, we saw, when I saw this last night, the injury that they're not really talking about today, um, because I guess they don't want to do a pile-on after De- DeMar Hamlin, but you should. We need to know what's going on with these injuries since they have a 100% injury rate. Come on, everybody. Let's talk about that. And then Big Pharma. American taxpayers pay to develop these vaccines, these shots. And now the plan is to shift the cost onto the American consumer. So we're going to have to pay for it now and just give Big Pharma more money, Moderna, Pfizer, all of them. Just give them more money. Are you serious? So we're going to be talking with John Nichols about that. Of course, he has a book that you need to get, Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers. That is what they are. And then we're going to talk with Dwight McKee at the bottom of this hour about the mayoral debate as we move into this season. It is just the election is next month, and if we have a runoff, it's just a couple of months after that. 
how did we get here? Because you see African-Americans and white ethnics and our Latino brothers and sisters fighting for space. How did we get here? Well, Dwight McKee's going to break it down, and it will make all of these fights that we have in Chicago make a lot of sense to you, make a lot of sense. So let's get right to it here on Tuesday, January 17th, 2023. I am Santita Jackson coming to you from the nation's largest progressive talk radio station, WCPT, and AM 950 Radio, the voice of progressive Minnesota in Chicago. We will have a high of 44 degrees. It will be cloudy. Minneapolis, St. Paul, 34 degrees, snow showers, and in the NFL, as I just shared with you, the Cowboys 31, the Buccaneers 14. The Buccaneers are out of the playoffs. Mm. Well, Tom Brady hanging up, or will he try it for one more year? You can talk, call me about that, too. 773-763-9278-773-763. WCPT. In the NBA, the Utah Jazz 126, the Timberwolves, Timberwolves 125. Oh, that's a heartbreaker. In the NHL, the Wild will be playing the Capitals, and the Sabres will be here in Chicago facing off against Chicago. 773-763-9278. I want to know... What's on your mind today? After an onslaught of atmospheric rivers recently battered California with flooding, a much-needed break from the rain is finally in sight. Flood watches that covered millions in coastal central California have expired. Though crews will be busy cleaning up the damage over the next several weeks, the storm system is now advancing farther inland and is, is expected to bring heavy snowfall into the Four Corners region. Up to two feet of new snow is expected in parts of Colorado by this evening, while rain is forecast for much of the southwest. And the threat by midweek will be in the south. Oh, everybody, let's just pray about this crazy weather we've got. Another spate of shootings has this week. This week is shaking up communities all across America, according to this CNN report. At least six people, including a mother and her six-month-old baby, are dead after a cartel-style execution. They shot the baby in the head, everybody. It occurred on Monday in Goshen, California. The shooting appears to be gang-related, according to the sheriff's report. Following the discovery of misplaced classified documents from President Joe Biden's time as vice president, House Republicans are demanding that the White House turn over more information, including any visitors' logs to Biden's private residence, where a batch of documents was found. The White House Counsel's Office, however, said there are no visitors' logs that track guests who come and go at at President Biden's home in Wilmington, Delaware. Like every president across decades of modern history, his personal residence is personal, according to the Counsel's Office. Some Republicans are crying foul saying former President Donald Trump was treated differently when FBI agents searched his Mar-a-Lago residence last August. That is his primary residence, everybody. Those are just a few of the headlines on the Santita Jackson Show. We have got Reverend Stephen Thurston II. Of course, he just retired from Salem, but you know he's got more work at New Covenant and all all around the country and all around the world, and he will be on Facebook Live at 3 p.m. this afternoon. Will you not? Yes, ma'am, I sure will. And what will you be talking about? Santita, I really haven't decided yet. There's so much to talk about. I'm normally structured and prepared. I just don't know. It's just so much. Do you know I did that yesterday when I spoke at, uh, I was on a panel. I was honored to be uh, with this magnificent panel yesterday as we talked about Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. 
And, yeah. you know, and I am Captain Tight. I like to have everything <laughs> loaded out. And when I got there and was listening to the panel, I said, I've got to start. Lord, just guide me. i got to start from scratch. Yeah. yeah. And right maybe that's the best thing. Flexing another that's muscle. How about that's that? it. That's it. Hmm. Listen, okay. as... As as you crawled in the bed last night and dumped your pillow uh, to make that perfect little cave for your head to rest in, pull the covers up tight around your chin, and let go of that big sigh that indicates that today is finally finished, I'm curious, how did you measure the quality of your day? Now, most of us measure our day by what we did. We'll reflect back and count the things on the to-do list that we were able to check off. And the more check marks in our minds, the better. How well we did will also come into play as we reflect back on our doing. The more praise we received for the things we accomplished, either the self-provided kind or, or that that's offered by others, the higher we rank our day in terms of quality. We'll even compare our daily accomplishments against those co-workers who trudge through the hours with us. What happens, however, if you never got done what you wanted to get done, or if what you did was simply more of the same old drudgery that fills most of your days? If you didn't do what you had planned well, or, heaven forbid, you messed up royally and had others chastise you for it, Chances are you stumped your pillow a little harder than necessary. Your ability to fall asleep may have been disrupted as you ruminated regretfully over all the things you did that you wish you hadn't. Now, I've spent plenty of days as a checkmark addict, like you said, and a competitive (laughs) comparison seeker. I was compelled to set one goal after another after another to constantly add just one more thing my mile-long to-do list. I believed that I had to do so much in order to feel like I was enough. So I did, and I did, and I did, until one day something I could do no more. It wore me out, and I was forced to cut back on the doing and face the reality of my situation. Now I consider myself a pathological doer in recovery. <laughs> Sadly, <laughs> most of us still measure the quality of our daily experiences, the quality of our lives, by what we do. And we seldom determine the value of our life experiences by how we are on, by, by, by how we are or on the beingness of it all. What would happen if we did? What if you and I ignored the urge to check out the check marks on our to-do list before getting in the bed? What if we sat quietly somewhere before bed and reflected on how we were that day, how we felt, how others seemed to feel around us, rather than on what we accomplished and who we did more than? Would the quality of our day change? I know the quality of my life changed since I began to measure my day differently. In fact, my life improved almost immediately when I began at the end of the day to reflect on the questions that really matter. Did I smile enough today? Did I laugh? Did I find moments of unexpected joy? Did I love what I was doing throughout the day? Did I love on the people that were around me? Did I reach out a hand of support or offer two kind words to another? Not because I had it on my to-do list, but because it was something that I, I was just inclined to do from my heart. 
And even if you have a big, beautiful check mark beside everything on your to-do list, at the end of the day, there may still be room for improvement in the being department. Most of us spend too many moments of our day diminishing its quality by getting too wrapped up in doing. Recognizing the problem is the first step to healing. And the good news is, from that awareness, we can grow from the less than good days of being. We can begin to experience life the way we were meant to, with peace and with joy. The quality of our life is determined by who we are, not by what we accomplish. We are, after all, human beings, not human doings. Mm. So let's base the value of today on that small bit of wisdom, and I want us to live accordingly. I want us today to just be. How do you do that? It's a mindset shift. It's about reorienting our priorities. Focusing on what really matters, raising those questions that I started raising myself. Did I love enough today? Did, did I smile enough today? Did I laugh enough today? Was I present enough today? Did the people around me enjoy me being around them because I had joy in my heart? Or was it just about, I got this done, I got that done, I got this done, I got that done? We've got to reorientate our priorities as we move through our daily experiences. Mm. Everybody think about that, because I think that we really, well, you know, I think that <clears throat> oftentimes, you know, I went through a really, really, really rough patch in college. You know, that was probably, Pastor Thurston, the worst time of my life, college. Gotcha. When, you, when you're supposed to have lots of fun, I was yes. absolutely miserable. And, it, and when I look at pictures of myself from that time, I will be 60 in July. I look like I was 60 then. Wow. It was, it's amazing. It's amazing. I don't mind talking about age. What is that woman who tells her age will tell anything? No, my father told me when I was turning 25, because my mother said, you're getting old. And she meant it, you know, but she's of a certain <laughs> generation. And yeah. my father said, um, came by my room. We were in Atlanta at the Democratic Convention. And he came by my room, and, um, and he and I have always had talks on my birthday. He's just, that's always mm. been his practice. He's always the first person to call, and he always sends me a couple of dozen roses. Has done that since I was, oh my gosh, since I was about 10 or 11. Wow. And, um, I, you know, it's almost roll, eye roll. Here come the roses. Here's Daddy. He's going to call me at 5 in the morning. He's going to call me again at 12 hours at 6 o'clock. This is when you were born. He remembers it all. Yeah. And he, as he, he, you know, happy birthday, baby. And, of course, he told me my birth story. You know, he took Mom to the hospital and went to play football with his friends. He found out I was born, ran to the hospital. Blah, 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 blah. So I get it, and I love it. Um... And as he left, you know, I love you, baby, and just so glad that you're my daughter. Gave me a kiss. And then he came back. He knocked back on the door, and he came back in the room. He said, um, I don't want you to get caught up in what I see so many women get caught up in. I said, okay, Daddy, what is that? He said, fearing getting old. He said, in our line of work, getting old is a gift. People in our space don't live long. He said, but you know, if you don't like birthdays, try missing one. 
I said, okay. He said, if someone told you you had a terminal illness today, I said, Dad, you'd be running after a birthday. He said, exactly. He said, so just embrace it. So you, he said, you're getting older. Thank God for that. I said, okay. And, you know, and I, and I took that. I took that. I yes. took that. And, and I've kept it with me. And that happened, that was like almost 35 years ago. I'll never forget that as long as I live. But, yes. you know, I think that um, as I was going through in school, he said, you know, and, you know, going to college, you know, who would think that I, I would have all of this confusion? But I had all of these message come, come, messages coming at me. I didn't want to be at the school where I was, even though I love Howard. Didn't want to major in the major I was in. But, you know, I felt pressured to do that. Yes. And um, he said, you know, um, and so I started struggling with my grades, which was very unusual for me. And he said, you know, you can't be my baby when you get a B or a C. And he said, you can't be my baby when you get an A and my B when you get a B or a C. Mm-hmm. He said, you're my daughter always. Yeah. So what we have to do is find out. He said, I need you to read Rabbi Paul Tillich's book, The Courage to Be. How about that? And so when I think about you talking about being human beings and not being human doings, I thank you for that. Because oftentimes we feel, Reverend Thurston, that we need to be this. We need to look a certain way. We need to do this. I've got to get you the big gift so you'll really like me. And it's like, that's unnecessary. It's unnecessary. The last minute belongs to you. Listen, there's a lot of pressure around all of us. And that pressure can put us in a place where we miss being present. I want us to be present and enjoy every moment of every day. The reality is we don't know when our expiration date is. And so just be just enjoy, just love, just share. Be the hands and feet of Jesus as you go through your daily experiences today and love on somebody because today literally could be their last day and you could be the last encounter that they have with another human being. So let's love on some people and just be as we flow through this day with a smile on our face and joy in our heart. How about that? This may be the last time, I don't know. Remember that song? <laughs> it just might be. Well, you know what, Pastor Thurston, we are coming into the mayoral race, and I knew you love politics. We're going to have Dr. D, Dwight McKee on, talking oh, yes. to us about all of these tribes that we're in, in Chicago, how we got here. Because, okay, we've had the first black mayor, we've had the first black woman mayor, we've had the first woman mayor, we've white woman mayor, we've had, we've had all... How did we get here? How do we get here? How do we get here? Because I think that if we understand our past, Pastor, we understand where we're going. Sure. So, you know, I heard Dr. Dwight McKee outline this brilliantly yesterday when we were, when we were at the University of Chicago at the invitation of Dr. Thomas and uh, Reverend Vicki Johnson. And so let's talk about this. How we got here. I mean, who do you have in this mayoral race? I want you to call me at 773-763-9278, 773-763-WCPT. Who do you think is going to win? 
back with more of the Santita Jackson Show. And stick around, because I've got two tickets to give away for our mayoral debate on January 26th. But you got to listen to the Santita Jackson Show. Back in just a minute. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Hey, everybody, stay tuned. I've got two tickets to give away to this mayoral debate that we are having. WCPT 820, everybody, on January 26th. You want to be there. The, the mayoral candidates will be there, and we will be asking questions. Joan Esposito, Patty Vesquez, and Santita Jackson will be moderating these debates. And we want to know um, what you want us to ask. What are the issues that are uppermost in your minds? And you see all of these people running for mayor who represent various constituencies in Chicago. They say that Chicago is America's city because it just really, we're at the crossroads geographically, politically, socially, culturally of the country. Literally, we are at the crossroads. But how did we end up here? How did Illinois, Chicago, become Chicago? And how is it that we have um, all of these factions here? Hmm. Let's talk about it here. Call us at 773-763-9278. I want to know what your thoughts are. Who do you think is going to win? Or do you think we're going to have a runoff? And if we have a runoff, who do you think will win the runoff? Call me at 773-763-9278, 773-763-WCPT, everybody. Before we get to Dr. D, Dwight McKee, and talk about this mayoral race and really how we... How Chicago became Chicago, I think it's important for us to understand that, because then you understand the Irish police department. You understand, uh, you know, white ethnics really occupying these middle-class jobs. You understand why uh, black people got who were the preferred uh, hires in the post-slavery period. No one wanted to marry. No one wanted to. Uh, no one wanted to hire Europeans, Germans in particular. Why? I don't know but because the most skilled workers came from the plantations. So how did we end up here? What happened? <laughs> Let's talk about it on the Santita Jackson Show on WCPT 820 in Chicago and AM 950 Radio, the voice of progressive Minnesota. But first, we've got to get our vittles together, celebrations by us. What's going on, Chaparral? Good morning, Santita, and thank you so much for having us. And celebrations by us, we are your one-stop party connection, and we are gearing up for the Super Bowl, as well as also Valentine's Day. So please give us a call at 708-526-4546. We can handle all of your party rings, your sliders, your meatballs, as well as also your dirty rice, your uh, mozzarella, your mac and cheese, and also our sweets. And we're doing uh, Valentine's Day orders as well. We can do your fresh flowers, your strawberries, your custom cookies, whatever is it, whatever it is that you need for these holidays coming up. Give us a call at seven zero eight five two six four five four six. We look forward to serving you. Thank you so much, Santita. You're very welcome. All right, Dr. D. Dwight McKee, you and I were on a panel yesterday. I was so honored to be on this panel, and I was especially honored to be with you because you are so brilliant. And um, the thing is, we were talking about Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King and what got him to Chicago, right? Um, The conditions. 
of black people in particular that had him move his northern campaign to Chicago, um, which is where Reverend Jackson started working for him. But Reverend Jackson was already, Reverend Jesse Jackson was already a student at the University of Chicago. So contrary to what many people believe, Dr. King did not, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King did not bring Reverend Jackson to Chicago. School did, his graduate work did at the University of Chicago, which had the Chicago Theological Seminary at that time. And because he was such a brilliant organizer, uh, Reverend James Bevel uh, went to Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, who knew Reverend from his college days, because he was a very, very college prominent man in college. He was the student vice president of his national fraternity, Omega Psi Phi, captain, um, uh, excuse me, the president of the president of the Omega Psi Phi fraternity on his college campus as well. And he was quarterback and had just done all these great things. So. There you have it. Um, But he thought that he was a great organizer, and he was right. That having been said, there there is a context in which Dr. King came here. And there's a context in which we are living now, and there's a context in which everybody's coming to this mayoral race. And so I wanted to bring Dr. D back on, Dwight McKee, someone who we affectionately know as Dr. D, to talk to us about how we got here because really as you were talking yesterday our pastor Reverend Reginald Sharp from Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church said I did not know all of this just wow I didn't know all of this I didn't know and it helps to reframe how you look at this mayoral race and and really helps you to reframe how you look at America welcome back home Dr. D. Dwight McKee how why did you start with the history of how we got, how and why we got here when we were talking about Dr. King and uh, the racial and economic injustice that he came here to fight? Well, the question yesterday, and thank you for that introduction, Dantita. Uh, the question that Dr. Vicki Johnson then was raising is, what did Dr. King come to Chicago for in the first place? And what kind of Chicago did he come into? And I listened to King Day yesterday, and one of my positions was that I think we do our kids a disservice when we make Dr. King about a speech. Uh, And we do these oratorical contests, and they're very good, and these kids have skills. But they only understand Dr. King in one dimension, and he was a man of dimensionality. But to understand his dimensionality, you also want to have to understand the dimensionality of the community that he came out of and related to. And so I figured that since we had the other parts of Dr. King's life covered between you and Dr. Sharp uh, and, and Sister Porter, who had known Dr. King, that I would give the, the the real general context because we were at the University of Chicago and it was really part of the story. Let me give you the context quickly so that we can understand where we are, who we are, and how we got here. Is that first you have to understand that Chicago has always been a trading center, even for the natives. It was a trading center. The South and the the Iroquois and the Illinois and the Milwaukee 
and it was the center of all of these uh, trading relationships between those natives that were already here. And that's why you have these trails uh, in the state, you know, like Salt Trail and, 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 and missing these highways, I-55. All of these have been trails, Indian trails, even before the natives got here. I mean, even before the, the, the whites got here. The genius of, of DuSabo, who was the first non-Indian native, is that he was a trader from Haiti who lived in New Orleans. And he followed the river, the Mississippi River, up and kept following the trail till he came into the, the uh, to Lake Michigan. And being a trader, he understood the profundity of having a river that came all the way back from New Orleans and the Gulf of Mexico that came all the way through the Lake Michigan and the Great Lakes that you could follow all the way up into Canada. And so what he did was, the genius that he was, is he set up his own trading post so that he could bring goods up from New Orleans to trade with the natives, take those back, and also had the option to trade with the French up in, from Canada. And he became the center of that trading experience. And as a result of that, people uh, recognized that. And so some of the Irish guys, guys like Dearborn, uh, came in, guys came in and set up their own little post. And so Chicago became kind of a little hub of this trading experience. And and as more groups and more individuals found this to be true, then they came over to get their own little piece of the rock. Now, as it evolved, one of the guys, one of the Irish guys who had come over was a guy by the name of Stephen A. Douglas. That same Stephen A. Douglas, who was part of the Douglas Lincoln debates. Douglas was a land speculator and also a congressman. And so Douglas came in and began to set his operation up in such a way that he then began to, he and his friends, to buy the land that went down the Lake Michigan. As he bought the land that went that the, from Lake, the Lake Michigan land, he, uh, um, as he bought the Lake, Lake Michigan land, what he did was he realized and recognized that at some point the technology for trading would change and go from boats and barges to the railroad. And so Stephen A. Douglas, as he bought that land, then began to cut a deal in Congress to say that if you were to take the railroads 
and bring them through Illinois rather than Atlanta, I will cut a deal for you all in the South where you all have the right to decide which states they come into the Union want slavery and can maintain slavery. It was a thing called the Missouri Compromise. The Missouri Compromise allowed him to become the preeminent controller of the railroad in the land that the railroad dealt with. As he then cut that deal, it really divided the country in two. And so, you know, the Nebraska Cancer Act, the Missouri Compromise, those acts literally divided the country and created the reason why guys like John Brown moved to Kansas to fight not to have these, these, these states become slave states. Fast forward a little bit. When the railroads came to town, they literally made Chicago the transportation center of the world, of the United States, because it was right in the middle of the country. And one of the things that they were doing was, as the, the, the situation in Europe became worse and worse for these ethnic, ethnic groups in Europe, they then began to set up for the Europeans these Hempstead Act where the Europeans could come to America who were really suffering in Europe and buy land for two, three, four dollars an acre and set their own enclaves up over in America. And so you had situations like the Irish potato farm and you had guys go over uh, from Ireland come over and set up. Old MacDonald had a farm, E-I-E-I-O. He had a farm here because he couldn't grow anything in Ireland because the British controlled the economy in Ireland. The Germans, who was under severe uh, threat in Germany based on some of their own Protestantism and, and, and Catholicism and the battles they were having over there. The Italians, who was fighting for land in Italy, who had really had a, uh, not that much to eat over there because they were controlled by Baron and King before Bismarck put the whole country together. You, you, you had situations like the Jews, who were under oppression, or under oppression all over Europe, who were under the programs in Europe, in Russia, who was looking for a state. You had all of these different ethnic groups in Europe who were starving to death, who saw America as an opportunity. And so many of them moved over to the Midwest trying to get their piece of the rock. One of the situations you had here is coming out of the railroad uh, reality. You had a guy by the name of George Fulman who saw this as an opportunity to set his own business up. So he put together what was called the Pullman Cards. And he set up 
a community that was modeled on the plantation called Pullman, George Pullman. It was a situation where these ethnic groups came over and each one of them worked for him building his railroad car. But he owned the houses, he owned the banks, he owned the schools. And so it was a replica of the plantation system, but really employing mostly ethnics from Europe. One of his ideas was to put together a car just for rich people, the Pullman car. And one of the things he needed for that was he needed people to service those cars for the rich. His idea was because blacks on the plantation, the house Negroes had already been predisposed to know how to service white people, that he would employ them. And so the whole first generation of house Negroes out of the Civil War were employed by them. He brought them to Chicago and turned them into the Pullman Order. And it created a option and an opportunity for the blacks who had been working on the plantation to come north and set themselves up in a legitimate black community. Now, when that happened, In 1871, Chicago burned down. And so now you have profound opportunities because now you have to rebuild the city. And so it gave those Europeans who had skills a place to come and be able to settle themselves. The other people who saw the value of this being a transportation system, what did you? who saw it as a system where we could, they could then put goods and services in uh, that they could then market and trade to the West. And so you had guys like, 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 like Jews Rosenwald and the Jewish merchants come up and set up all of these little distribution houses, Sears and Robots. Uh, Marshall Fields, Montgomery Wards, they began to be able to use the transportation system to market goods to the east and the west. And then you had guys like Swift who saw the value of being able to bring in cows and livestock. And so they set up the slaughterhouses so they could then get food on the, with the railroad to the east and to the west. And so now you have Chicago divided into these manufacturing plants, these uh, slaughterhouses, uh, these enclaves of, of uh, new building opportunities. One of the next levels of that is that they now are short on labor. And so what these manufacturers did was then use the Pullman porters to entice other blacks to come up 
off the plantation in the South to take a lot of these manufacturing jobs to go to Gary that was using the steel mills to be able to rebuild Chicago uh, to come up and to work in the slaughterhouses to come up and become Pullman porters. And so you had what was called the Great Migration uh, that about a million blacks came into the city to be able to work and have opportunities in these businesses. But you also had all of these European ethnics coming over competing for the same job. Now, the difference between the European ethnics and the white Southerners is the white Southerners have been raised with and related to and commiserated with black people because they were, many of them have been slaveholders or raised with them. The Europeans themselves never had that experience, had no exposure to black people. And so in many ways, black people were alien to, with, to, to black people than the Southern whites. One of the things that Greg used to say about the difference between whites in the South and whites in the North is that in the South, they didn't mind how close you got, just don't get too big. In the North, they didn't mind how big you got, just don't get too close. And so a Chicago then became the most segregated city in America with each one of these ethnic groups fighting for a piece of the rock. The problem was, is they fought for a piece of the rock. In many ways, the only option they had was to take those things that the blacks had excelled at that they had done in Europe and reclaimed that once they got here at our expense. And that's what created the tension. When we were in the South, we were the great artisans. We are the ones that had built the White House. We are the ones that had built Monticello. We had all of the building skills and all of the blacksmith skills. That's why they call them blacksmiths. Once the, we had to compete with those European ethnics who had those same skills in Europe, we became a threat. And so it created this dynamic tension between blacks from the South and the ethnic groups that had moved over here uh, to Chicago. The seg- segregation patterns were as such that they ended up locking us in on a real small part of the land. And so that million people who had been a thriving community, who had been a productive community, who had been uh, Bronzeville, now over time, because they wouldn't let them out, he had to go up and they began to pile upon it on top of each other and became what's called the ghetto and the project because they would not let us outside of the boundaries that they had locked us into. Your father used to do a real brilliant analysis. He would talk about that 
black Chicago was 25% of the population, but we only lived on 10% of the land. And so the, 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 the uh, dilemma was that the other 15% only survived by holding on to the 10% who was on the land. So they went up rather than out, and that explained all of the high-rise projects there. That had a net effect on everything in the, in the city, Santita. It had a net effect on the school system. It had a net effect on the housing. It had a net, a net effect on who controlled the jobs and the goods and services. Because each one of those ethnic groups claimed their own piece of the rock. So the Irish, they claimed politics. They claimed the police department. They claimed the fire department, and that became and locked us out, and that became the generational jobs for them. And they set up their own communities. Even today, about about sixty percent of the of the, of the firemen and the police live in about five wards, and they they have set those up generationally, so that those jobs are passed down to their children and their children's children, their uncles and 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 aunties. And as they bring their cousins over from Ireland, they make sure that they insert them in the city job, the sanitation job. Well, you know what? Same thing. Stay, hmm? stay right there. Stay right there because I want you to get some closing thoughts on the other side of the break because we're at each other's throats today. <laughs> And it seems to me that there's this un, there's a, that somebody else is running the city. Because you've been talking about workers. But somebody else is running the city. And we're all running to be the mayor and to divvy up a piece of the piece of the pie. We need to talk about that. Who do you have in this mayoral race? Call me at 773-763-9278. And let's talk about football injuries and Big Pharma charging a whole lot of money for COVID-19 drugs. Back in just a minute. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Everybody, Tuesday, January 17th, 2023. I'm Santita Jackson coming to you from WCPT 820, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station and AM 950 radio, the voice of progressive Minnesota, Chicago, Chicago, Chicago. We've got our mayoral race, everybody. And in this hour, I will be giving away two tickets to our mayoral debate, which will be held on January 26th. Yes, that's right. We will all be in the room together. Joan Esposito. Patty Vasquez, Santita Jackson, and the mayoral candidates, and a host of 
invited guests, and you are will be among the guests, but you got to win that ticket. So stay right here and listen to the Santita Jackson Show at 773-763-9278. Not just yet, but I'm going to let you know when you call in. And we are going to welcome you to, uh, to our debate. I want to thank you for coming to the Push Excel Rainbow Push uh, MLK Breakfast. More than a 1,000 of you were there. It was fantastic. We, of course, uh, Congressman Jonathan Jackson gave a rousing, very profoundly touching uh, speech, almost a sermon. And then we had, of course, Congresswoman Dalia Ramirez and Congresswoman Robin Kelly, Congressman Danny Davis, who's taken Congressman Jackson under his wing, Congressman Bobby Rush. What? And so many people who were there. It was just fantastic. It was fantastic. And, of course, Chuy Garcia spoke. Um, who's running for mayor. Of course, he'll be participating in that mayoral debate, too. So it's a lot. And Mayor Lori Lightfoot, she spoke. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful event. And thank you all for being there and and giving the Push Excel program support. We have uh, sent thousands of college, more than $20 million we have been able to raise to send our kids to college. Please continue to give us your support. Go to rainbowpush.org so that we can get your support. In Chicago, we will have a high of 44 degrees. It will be cloudy. Minneapolis, St. Paul, 34 degrees. Snow showers in the NFL. Ooh, 31. Cowboys, the Bucks, 14. Tom Brady is not going to be going to the Super Bowl this year. And there was a horrific injury that we saw yesterday. We're going to be talking with Attorney C.K. Hoffler about that. In the NBA, the Utah Jazz, 126. The Timberwolves, 125. The Bulls had the night off. And in the NHL, the Wild will be playing the Capitals, and the Sabres will be here in Chicago. Uh, in terms of headlines, after an onslaught of atmospheric rivers recently battered California with flooding, a much-needed break from the rain is finally in sight. Flood watches that covered millions in coastal central California have expired, but now they're advancing further inland to the Four Corners region. You're going to see this in Colorado. You're going to see this in the southwest. You're going to see this in the south. Another spate of shootings this week is shaking up communities all across the United States. At least six people, including a mother and her six-month-old baby, are dead after a cartel-style execution occurred in Goshen, California. The shooting appears to be gangrelated according to their sheriff's department and CNN reporting. Um, eight people were shot at a block party in Fort Pierce, Florida, my mother's hometown, where the community was gathering to celebrate Dr. Martin Luther, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday, and on and on it goes. Following the discovery of misplaced classified documents from President Biden's time as Vice President, House Republicans are demanding that the White House turn over more information, including any visitors' logs to President Biden's private residence where a batch of documents was found. The White House counsel, however, said that there are no visitors' logs. Uh, to his private home that track guests who come and go in Wilmington, Delaware. Quote, like every president across decades of modern history, his personal residence is personal. Close quote. Some Republicans are crying foul, saying that that did not happen with President, former President Donald Trump, who lives his primary residence, of course, is at the, is at the Mar-a-Lago estate, estate. So you just it just keeps on going and going and going, everybody. And we just cannot wait to see more of 
where all of this is heading. Where do you think this is heading? Call me at 773-763-9278. In the meantime, guess what? We are looking for financial freedom, everybody. And Team Hochberg, they're your guys. If you're selling your home or purchasing a new home and would like to save thousands of dollars, you need to call Team Hochberg, your trusted local lender. Team Hochberg is offering everyone their perks at work benefit through the end of April, which can save you thousands of dollars the next time you buy or sell a home. Their perks at work benefit program. When a team Hochberg affiliated realtor sells your home, they'll reduce their fee up to 1%. When a team Hochberg affiliated realtor sells, helps you purchase a home, you will receive up to 1% of their commission as a closing cost credit. Team Hochberg will credit their loan origination fee and their affiliated attorney will reduce, will reduce his fee. It's a great deal, everybody. A couple saved close to $9,000 using Perks at Work when they sold their home and purchased a new one. To learn how you can save thousands of dollars the next time you buy or sell a home, give Team Hochberg a call at 855-56-DAVID or visit them at 56david.com. 855-56-DAVID or 56david.com, your equal housing lender. Before we move on to this, wow, it just doesn't stop. Every It seems like we the injuries become, well, maybe we're more, our sensibilities and senses have been heightened since watching DeMar Hamlin just, his heart stopped. No one wants to see it, but he died on the field, and they revived him. Yeah, yeah I'll say it. It's, it's all horrific, and maybe that's why we've all been so shaken. Uh, but you're also shaken when you find out, how little money he's getting. And just, you know, when these guys get injured, it's it's a tough road. There are no guarantees in football virtually. But we wanted uh, Dwight McKee to give us some closing thoughts. We've got to have you back, Dwight McKee. Uh, Attorney C.K. Hoffa is going to be talking with us about what we saw last night and what, our, what these football players need, the protections they need, not just in the NFL but in college and in high school. Um, Dwight McKee, when you give us this history of how we got here, which has got everyone riveted, what are we supposed to do with this? I mean, how can we? I mean, what are what do we what do we do with this? I mean, how does that shape in a couple of minutes who we are right now? Because you see, everybody's grabbing for something. Um, Every everybody everybody's grabbing, and it just seems some people are just are already locked into the system, and other people are locked out. And you're saying that's by design? Totally by design. Well, it makes life much more predictable because you know what they expect, because you know how the system is set up and how it's designed to actualize the potential of Europeans at the expense of everybody else. So you know that if there's a war in the Ukraine, that at some point they're then going to bring the Ukrainians to a city like Chicago and set them up at the expense of other people. That if you got to choose between the Haitians and the Ukrainians or the the, the Mexicans or Guatemalans, Guatemalans and the uh, the Ukrainians that the Ukrainians are going to get not just the nod, but also the resources. And at some levels, there's going to be 
a suffering. You know that when the Europeans come over and need jobs, is that at one level they're going to figure out how to get the blacks out of the unions because uh, and turn the jobs into union jobs and begin. You know, you can then predict that they're going to close down the schools that teach us trades, the trade schools, and shift that over to the police, to the uh, the prison industrial complex. If you understand how this thing is, is set up and designed for what it does, which it does very well, you can you can presuppose that when the young white teachers who don't have jobs need teachers, need teaching jobs, that they're going to shift education in such a way that the charter schools can come to come through or they'll close down the public schools and the teaching jobs, which was when I was growing up, probably 70% black in the black community is now 80% white with these young white teachers in who've taken these jobs. Is that you are fighting all of these different groups for a limited amount of resources, but these ethnic groups will always have the inside track on that. And if we're not organized to deal with that, then we will always suffer. And that was the reason that Addie Wyatt and and and, and Claude Wyatt and Charlie Hayes and the guys from the slaughterhouse from the union uh, unions who they, they worked at the slaughterhouses. That's why they brought Dr. King in. That's why they brought him in to deal with the the, the teaching issue because the schools had been come overrun and Al Raby and his crowd in Coco were for them enough was enough. And so they brought him in to deal with the, 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 the education issue. That's why they brought him to deal with open housing, because we were locked in the community. And he ended up doing these marches in Cicero and these ethnic communities, saying, open them up, allow us to move in. That's what redlining was about, is that they would only give us, make a certain amount of money available to us, or a certain amount of housing available to us to be able to lock us in. Most of our ills and most of our issues come out of that dynamic, out of this situation. And so we have to understand it in such a way is because when they bring the South Americans in and play them against us and they begin to compete for our resources or they begin to move them into Inglewood uh, to, the, to the schools that they close down, then we understand whether the the dynamic is going politically and uh, and socially, and we will not be deceived or fooled by them, and allow them to play us against the, 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 us, the poor against the poor, and be able to organize with a solution. Mm. 
C.K. Hoffler, I know this is not quite what we were going to be talking about today, but one of the things that I see you and Attorney Holmes, and really it's, it's been a centerpiece of your legal career, is fighting colonialism and slavery. Let, let me just put it broadly. Um, and it seems that the, the sporting world, stay right there, Dwight, is set up that way, too. You know, it's almost well, like it's no. a plantation system. Or am I misreading this? No, I don't think and you're it, misreading it. I, I don't think you're misreading it at all, Santita. Um, it's all related because the way that, you know, I always talk about some of these, these sports are like religion. And mm-hmm. so... Um, and so when we when we have situations where we have NFL players that are terribly injured and we look, we go behind the scenes and we see what they're doing, what they're getting, how much they're getting paid, how much they're not getting paid, um, that they are, in essence, not really terribly protected, mm-hmm. then we, we start to, to wonder what is going on, because it does feel like slavery, it does feel like they're commodities, which they really, which they really are. And I think that is how we have to focus on the players, on whether it's NFL, whether it's NBA, all of the sports professionals. And we have to start looking at them and protecting them when they're in high school. See, by the time they get to college, by the time they get to the, to the pros, the fix is in, if you will. They don't have the leverage, the maximum leverage to negotiate because they, they have given up that power. And so if they are injured... And, and by the way, I have two sons that, that both of them, and they are 18 and 20, have had major shoulder surgery. My young, and he plays football. They both play football. My younger son has now nine anchors in his shoulder. Nine. He's 18 years old because he plays football. He was injured playing football. We, we, both of them had the same injury when they were 18 years old. I don't know if there's a genetic component. I, all I know is, as a mother, I'm watching my children play football and my younger one walking off the field holding his shoulder. That's what I know. And so it begs the question as a parent, why are my children, and even if they're young adults, they're still children in our eyes, why are they even playing this very dangerous sport? And if they are going to play, how can we protect them? What things can we do to protect them? Because you go from being an 18-year-old having that injury, that is completely repairable. It's a very, very common shoulder, when the shoulder um, pops, pop, shoulders pop out of the socket. That's very common for football players, particularly defensive ends, because of how they tackle. So when you, when you see this as a parent and your children are playing, in my impression, kiddie football, where there's you know, very little at stake, um, you're wondering if they continue on how you can protect them. And the protections have to start early on. And the reason for that is now high school football players can be paid name, image, and likeness money. They can receive money for their athletic. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't receive money because they are the ones that are being injured. But I'm saying that they need protection. A lot of times these um, athletes, they are, most of them, I'd say, just based on the statistics that we've reviewed, 95% of them, for them, athletics are way out of a very, very difficult home life or family life situation. And it's an excellent opportunity for them to get um, edu- a free education. But 
at what cost you ask yourself because even many athletes they don't they may not need to get a free education but they want to play football they want to play basketball they want to play soccer i mean soccer at least football they're 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 protected on some level soccer and rugby are some of the most dangerous sports and they have no head protection more concussions hockey is another sport really really terribly dangerous so how do we protect these children because that's where they are when they start and what things do we have to put in place we have to change the narrative Sandita. and it is reminiscent of slavery where they have a skill they're going to market and they sell that skill and in exchange they get the, the some time of some type of remuneration whether it's a scholarship, whether it's NIL money, but it is the it is part of a business exchange. Let's be very clear. And in and this business, these businesses are trillion dollar industry. I no longer use billion dollar, trillion dollar industry. Everyone is glued. College football gets more um, views than the NFL. More people because there's some states like South Carolina, for example. There is no pro team. So Clemson, University of South Carolina, people descend upon it, it's just an amazing um an amazing to see the amount of popularity and the amount of money. Millions and millions, billions and billions which make this a trillion dollar industry. And so it is reminiscent of that and we need to think about that as we celebrate the life of Dr. King, all that he stood for, all that he meant, the labor negotiations, what your dad, Reverend Jesse Jackson, has done um, by way of negotiating contracts for athletes, including the entire Harlem, the entire Harlem Globetrotter team, when they had no, think about it, when your dad was negotiating this, when they had no rights, they had no benefits, and they were going out playing these grueling, very, very physical games. So it, it, it is reminiscent of that. The difference today from back in the 60s and the 50s and the 40s or even before, you know, the turn of the century is now legal counsel, financial counsel, communication counsel. There are teams that can that can help these families. But it's, it's as I said, you don't need to start when they're going to the pros. They need to start when they're in high school being recruited, heavily recruited, I might add. There are agents that are now, I know because one of my sons, got this packet from an agent seeking to recruit him, and he was 17 at the time. And so what they do is they identify these kids that they believe have NIL, NFL potential or NBA potential or can go to the pros and some of these other athletics. And the women, the women athletes, we, we saw um, really the journey of Brittany Griner, unfortunately, through her incarceration, and that shed light on what female athletes have to do in terms of earning a living because they are so woefully underpaid compared to their male counterparts. So this whole world is is slowly evolving, but we as parents have to demand and put together and, and, and avail ourselves of teams of professionals to help us evolve because otherwise when our kids get injured, not only will their career stop, but possibly their injuries can be a CT, can be a brain injury, something that is not reversible and that will forever change their lives, and they won't have any protection. You so, think of Russell Gage, who we saw last night, who had that, Absolutely. you know, it's like his head was bent all the way over, and then when he was twitching on the ground, and I said, does he have any protections? I mean, these are, Dwight, these are the things that with, I mean, it just seems that workers are locked in a struggle and we're, we are apart from each other when we all need to come together. The garbage worker, the, the NFL player, 
the baseball player, professional baseball player, the college players, they need to be standing with the garbage workers who strike on their campuses all the time, by the way. <laughs> and, and the, the lunch worker, I mean, the people who feed you in, in the cafeteria. We're all in the same position. Dwight, I got 30 seconds for you, Dwight. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why Marx was able to understand that it wasn't about black or white. It was about workers. And his thing was workers united. Because he understood that there was an, exploit, an exploited class and an exploited tainted class. And that unless the exploited class could come together, they would never get out of their situation. Um... The class struggle is a, is, a, is a major struggle, but racism is the greatest enemy to a class struggle because it divides people based on color rather than circumstances. We really have to mature past that to understand that, as your dad used to say, is all of us, uh, some of us came up on different ships. But all of us in the same boat. <laughs> Back with uh, talking about coronavirus criminals and pandemic profiteers with John Nichols in just a minute. We can change the world, change the world, change the world. Oh, yes, we, can. we can change the world, we can change the world, change the world. This is the Santita Jackson Show. everybody. Welcome back to the Santita Jackson Show. Full of information we have been today, and I promise you I'm going to work on getting back up on StreamYard tomorrow. I promise you we're going to do that. But in the meantime, I have got uh, Dynamo Dave, and I've got a pair of tickets to give away. Yes, because guess what? We are having a mayoral debate. But first, let me go to Dynamo Dave. Dynamo Dave, how you doing, sweetie? Hey, how's the sunshine sister of Illinois doing? Oh, my, my star. I just love you, Dynamo Dave. How you doing, sweetie? Love you, too. I'm doing very well. Thank you for taking my call. Hey, I want to say something about Mr. McKee. You know, well, your show, I learned more in in 30 minutes of your show than listening to about 100 hours of uh, National Public Radio. So I just want (laughs) to say it's so good. Yeah. So enlightening. Thank you. And Mr. McKee, did, Mr. McKee, have you ever written a book like Howard Zinn, you know, the People's History of uh, the U.S.? Have you, have you written any books, Mr. McKee? No, I haven't, but Santita is really trying to encourage me to do, to, to do Now, something. I'm just going to sit down and have him talk and transcribe it. Oh, okay. I'm just going to sit down because he, he always contextualizes everything that we see, and it makes yeah. sense. I mean... And, you know, I think he does need to write a book. Don't you think so, Dynamo Dave? Oh, most definitely. I mean, you're just, you're chock full of so much history and so much context around the history. And I learn so much every time you're on the show. And I want to thank you for appearing on Santina's show, taking the time to do so. Thank you, Dave. Okay. You're welcome. You're welcome. Much deserved. A couple things. Um... Okay, very quickly. Uh, I know, yeah, I know some conservatives that live in Chicagoland, and they, you know, they're moving out and probably, you know, whatever. But, and, and I know, you know, Chicago is a huge hub, whether you live in the suburbs or not. 
But and there's a you know there's a crime issue. It's spread out to the sub- suburbs, and but that's like nationwide. It's not just Chicago. But um, <laughs> it's, it's an American anyway, problem. Violence is an American yeah. dilemma. Yeah. Right, and I, I don't know if there's anything you can ask in your mayoral debate around that. Um, if there's anything that can be done from a, from a city level, but that I just want to bring that up. The other thing you're talking about sports, and of course. Uh, uh, people of uh, a darker complexion are, are overrepresented, and, and sports like football and, and and boxing, in my opinion, should be kind of outlawed because they put the body and the brain, the mind, in such jeopardy. Mm-hmm. We have people, you know, historically, we've had players in the NFL who have, uh, you know, committed suicide. Or yeah. gone done, done some bad things because of how their brain got damaged. You know, there's that unfortunate guy from San, the Senior Chargers. I can't remember his name. There's a guy mm-hmm. from the Kansas City Chiefs. Dave um, Dewerson. We've we've had a lot. We've had a lot of people. And then, of course, while Gail Sayers did not uh, was was not violent, he had profound dementia uh, when you know mm-hmm. he died. He and he had it for years. And so there's something there's something to be said for that. But you know, but and also black American kids, black American kids, not white American kids, but black American kids have now been locked out of major league baseball because we'd rather go get cheaper talent in Latin go get black kids from Latin America and Central America. And um, and indigenous kids from Central America and Latin America, uh, because we don't have to pay them as much, which is part of the reason they hated Hugo Chavez, because he said, if you're going to come to Venezuela and take my talent, you're going to pay them a minimum so they don't come back here broke. But Dynamo Dave, I want to thank you for your sensitivity. I've got to move on, but I love you, Dynamo Dave. Mwah. Sending you that. I love my I love my Dynamo Dave. Everybody, we're giving away. Board operator, let's open up these phone lines, 773-763-9278, 773-763-WCPT. We are giving away a pair of tickets to WCPT's Chicago Mayoral Forum Thursday, January 26th at Morningstar Auditorium. Across from Daly Plaza in Chicago, all nine candidates have confirmed their participation in this forum. This is your chance to hear directly from the candidates. Lunch will be provided at 11 a.m. The forum begins at noon. Joan Esposito, yours truly, Santita Jackson, and Patty Vasquez will be moderating the forum. The forum on WCPT is sponsored by Morningstar Roofers, Local 11, and Oscar Iberian Isberian Rugs. Contests running on WCPT 820 are open to listeners 18 or older and residents of the greater Chicago land, Northwest Indiana area. One entry per person, one winner per household, void where prohibited by law, and listeners may only win or qualify to win once every 30 days. Complete rules are available on our website at WCPT820.com by clicking the contest tab. I think we have a winner already. Who is it? Uh, This is Chris Bergen. Chris, how you doing, sweetie? Congratulations. I'm going to see you on the 26th, yes? That's great, yes. Yay! And all the candidates are going to be there. What do you want them to address? If you could give me, like, a top issue for you. Give me two. I think um, I think the structural racism in the city and what their plans are to start attacking that. And... 
I think another issue is the the huge budget that goes into the police department and maybe rethinking the police department uh, on a on a bigger kind of a, I guess outside the box and and thinking bringing out you know different issues around that yeah. Will you when you come there? Would you say hello to me, Chris? I will. All right, I'm gonna. I want a big hug. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. I want that. Just say it. Just say it. Sending you much love, Chris. All right, everybody got our first winner. Yay, board operator. We got through it. All right, everybody. We've got John Nichols. John, you've been so patient, and thank you for that. We've got a lot of stuff going on in Chicago. But you know what? You've written this book, Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers. And i got to tell you, how on time is your book? Because I have to tell you, I've been so oh, upset as I look at all of the money that these people are making. We, the American taxpayer, paid for the development of these shots, of these vaccines. And now the plan from the Biden administration, and really the corporatocracy, is to now shift, instead of getting free shots, now they're planning to shift everything back to the American consumer after we paid for it. But mm-hmm. then, you know, even discussions about this and about about the, what they're calling vaccine apartheid, you know, because they're not sharing the patents that we paid for. They didn't pay for it. We paid for it. We paid for this. All of that has been shut down on social media. Talk to me, John. Well, there's so much going on, and uh, it's important to kind of keep up with it and keep it in perspective. Let's start with the fact that uh, the COVID, COVID-19 pandemic, while it is not so overwhelming to people at this point, continues to be a reality. People still get sick. People still die. And, uh, and people still want and need vaccinations. Uh, yet we have a situation now where uh, Democrats and Republicans are trying to normalize things. And, and I understand that desire for normalization uh, in a way that kind of goes back to the old system. And one of the benefits, if you can use that word, of what we went through over the last few years was a realization that people need health care, particularly preventative health care, and that government can get it to them more efficiently, more quickly by removing the costs, right? By making sure that, uh, A, the costs of production are controlled so things don't get too expensive, and B, that the distribution, the access, be something that we, we want people to have. We want people to get the care that they need. And so we, we seem to make some progress for a little bit. But now we have this retrenchment. And what's interesting about it is to understand that much of the world still has not gotten um, a first of, of COVID vaccine. Now, as the disease changes, as the threats change, people will, will you know, think about how they want to do that, and et cetera. But the core concept that, you know, when, when people in the United States were getting vaccinations and people in Europe were getting them, people in much of the rest of the world were not. And so there was a, an international movement uh, called People's Vaccine. It was an effort to make sure that uh, countries around the world could produce low-cost 
inexpensive, easily accessed vaccines based on the formulas, right? It, it just made sense to get, get the care to the people that need it. And what we now find out through an important piece by The Intercept uh, is that the pharmaceutical companies actively went to social media companies and said, don't publicize this people's vaccine campaign. Don't let people know that there's a global effort to make sure that everybody gets the care that they need. Um, and that comes in combination with the recent revelation that Moderna, one of the companies that produced vaccines, and which got a tremendous amount of benefit from you know, government research and government support along the way, now it wants to massively increase prices for vaccines, you know, it, it just to spike them at exponential levels. And, you know, what's happening here really sent it. 4,000 percent. Wait, wait, wait. 4,000 percent. I mean, yeah, John. And you know that where they want to get that money from is from either directly from people or through the insurance companies, which then raises your insurance rate. Right. So the whole thing, you know, they're they're looking to, to maintain unimaginable profits. And this is the important thing to understand. The pharmaceutical companies made record profits during the pan, during the height of the pandemic. They made money at a rate of you know a thousand dollars a second, something like sixty four thousand dollars a minute, into the tens of millions every day, into the billions and the tens of billions. And so their their incredible profit curing office, even when there were some controls, is something they want to maintain. They want to make sure that they make. Uh, every penny they can, rather than uh, operating as they should, as utilities, right? Something that, that is regulated and that is, you know, monitored in the public interest. And so we've got a real fight going on right now. And unfortunately, most of our media, uh, be it social media or legacy media, doesn't cover um, these battles uh, very well. And so Senator Bernie Sanders, who obviously you know and I know, um, has stepped up to really highlight um, what's going on with this Moderna price hike uh, in an effort to make sure that people are aware of what's going on and arguing that Congress should be intervening here, that this is a place where, just as Congress intervened at the start of the pandemic, sometimes clumsily, sometimes making mistakes, but at least tried, um, that it should continue to do so because if we allow these pharmaceutical companies to engage in this incredibly high-level profiteering, right? A, some people won't get medicine they need. B, um, prices will increase. That's going to harm families economically. And C, the the overall cost of drugs will continue to rise. That has an impact on insurance and everything else. So we're in a situation right now where we ought to pause and think very seriously about how we're going to deal long-term with not just, you know, medications and not just uh, uh, vaccinations related to COVID, but in general with vaccinations, with medications, with everything. This is something that other countries around the world regulate. In the United States, what we tend to do is allow, you know, obscene profiteering. And what we now find out is that the pharmaceutical companies even actively campaigned to make sure that the American people and that people around the world didn't know there were alternatives to um, this profiteering. I think it's, it's shameful. It's shameful. And it's like no one is answerable. 
And you know, and, and what one of the one of my objections to all of this has been, you know, has been the censorship, not just on Twitter and in social media, but in all in all of corporate media. I mean, people yep. have not been allowed to ask questions, to have debates, uh, to look at alternative forms of of medication, um, to look at why. Uh, you know, Africa was supposed to was supposed to be wiped out by this. It did not happen. Why did that not happen? That's not because of a genetic predisposition. They were taking anti-malarial drugs that have been proven to work against COVID-19, at least in those populations. You know, I have friends from Europe who called me. In, you know, early 2020, are you taking vitamin D? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are you sure? Yes. Well, let me tell you why I'm asking you. A friend of mine, some friends from Germany, from from England, and from Germany, England, and France. They said, look, let me tell you this. And, they, and several of them were high up in government. They said, all our studies are showing that our African-descended populations are dying because they have severe vitamin D deficiencies. They're called the sun people. And when you bring people from warm climates into cold climates, we're shocked. And we develop vitamin D deficiencies. You see it with people of color when, when we come to the West. It happens all the time. And I said, and so, so what the health service in England started doing was sending vitamin D to all the people of color. They said, you know, at least we're going to, because this is before you had a vaccine, right? They were like, we're trying to find some things to help you to mitigate this. But you can't have the discussion, John. I mean, when you have this kind of censorship, I think that's very dangerous. Well, and that's, here's the here's the bottom line. Um, what we know is that pharmaceutical companies, the big pharmaceutical companies, want to maximize their profits, right? So they want to make sure that we are very focused on you know letting them tell us what the right response is. Now, people can debate, you know, a, a lot of, of proper responses to any any ailment and any condition. People do. There are there are different approaches to things. But what the pharmaceutical co- companies want to do is have a, a sort of one size fits all approach that ensures that they make huge profits. And it, in a moment where, um, especially with the vaccines, there's a tremendous amount of government promotion saying, you know, get your vaccination, you know, make sure that you're that you're cared for. Uh, and I'm vaccinated and I'm boosted and all that. Um, so I'm, I'm sympathetic to this this argument. But um, what they what they don't say is that this comes at a cost. Right. You know, that it is, there are expenses for this. And the question is, are you going to allow the pharmaceutical companies to define what what care you get and what the cost of that care is because that's a pretty that's a pretty rough situation economically you know put aside all the debates about you know every every other aspect of this but think about the economics of this that um if, if you own uh a, a a company that produces something and you get to um a benefit from research that that helped you to produce what you produce b um, get to benefit from promotion of your product, you know, public promotion of your product. People saying, oh, yeah, you should you should get this product. And then see, you can set your price for that product. Right. I mean, that's pretty much a perfect situation. Right. You you have a product that you produce for relatively low cost. You um, have immense promotion of it. 
uh, even an argument that, that people need to have it. Uh, and then you get to say what, what that cost is going to be. This is an absurd construct. We wouldn't allow it in, in all sorts of other areas, and we shouldn't allow it in this area. And, again, this is what Senator Sanders is talking about, uh, that, that there really needs to be a recognition that we're in a moment where these pharmaceutical companies, which have not been good players, which have tried to minimize discussion about, you know, keeping costs down, about getting care to people that need it, et cetera, um, they now are seeking to, you know, very quickly, without a lot of attention, raise prices by exponential rates or at exponential rates. And this is something that we ought to, as a society, pause and, and talk about. Uh, we ought to debate this. And here's the, here's the critical thing, Cynthia. When we have open, honest debate about, um, about prices of drugs, about pharmaceutical companies and stuff like that, people are pretty much united. Republicans and Democrats, mm-hmm. liberals and conservatives, uh, you know, urban and rural, there's a great deal of unity around the argument that pharmaceutical companies charge too much, take advantage of us in too many ways, and end up running up costs that in, in other countries are far lower. You know, that's the important thing to understand. In most countries that we would want to compare ourselves to, uh, the prices for, for drugs that, that we pay huge amounts for in the United States are dramatically lower. And also, a lot of countries around the world, as you referenced, uh, put an emphasis on preventative care. And they, they look for, you know, all the things that we can do to keep healthy um, without having to end up having to take a lot of medications. But when you end up in a situation where the pharmaceutical companies define the debate, where they literally shape, you know, what we know and what we, what we should think about, um, you know, what we take and how much it should cost, where they fill our television, uh, you know, programs at night with advertisements for all sorts of new drugs, um, you end up in a situation where uh, the rational discussion, the necessary discussion about how to help people be healthy and to live long, good lives um, is put aside so that, that a handful of companies and their investors can make massive profits. I just And I think that's just unethical. Let me bring on Anita from North Carolina. I just want to get at least one call in before before we have to go. Anita, you got about a – can you do it in – can you give it to me in about 90 seconds, your question or comment? Hopefully less. Thank you, sweetie. I've watched – hi, good morning. I've watched this go on in this country for so long, and it's such a disrespect to women that have children with their husbands and – the husbands are paying and the wives are paying taxes. And we're raising these children 18, 20 years, and then they haul them out to, to war and, and kill our children, and we get nothing. You know, and, and it's the same thing. So, I mean, it's almost, and I'm not trying to be funny, but this is a circle. Then these people that make this money, they invest in violence and killing other people for more money. I mean, it's, just, it's like they never stop being needing to be thirsty to be greedy or, or something crazy. And I'm tired of it. It keeps happening. And, and, and you said the American government pays for it. So the people should get some type of, what you call it, I'm not a... No, the American people pay through it, pay for it through the government. Because the government, the only money they have is what they get from us. Exactly. So we're paying for it. And aren't we supposed to get that, what's that business, uh, 
crawfish herring or whatever. Or whatever well, wait a minute. Now, that, now, that's novel. Stay right there, Anita. John, <laughs> what's our dividend? <laughs> yeah, I'd say it's a very, Anita raises a very good uh, thought on this theory. Yeah. Um, but you see, that's exactly how it ought to operate, right? Um, that, that when the federal government does research and protects companies, actually makes it easier for them to develop their products and make money, be it pharmaceutical companies or anything else, um, we ought to we ought to be able to regulate that in a way that makes sure that 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 they don't profiteer off us and that we in fact do get the benefits right i mean isn't it absurd that when you come up with a cure for a disease and when there's massive federal government and international um cooperation to make sure that you you know either it's a cure or a treatment or a, a perhaps a preventative uh initiative Whatever that that we don't get that you know as as our right you know, where it would be said well yeah of course you helped to produce this but I don't want to stop there I want to I want to be go to a perhaps a deeper argument here which is I've got one minute that, left for you mm-hmm. simple one to do in less than a minute in in countries around the world uh, they have many have national healthcare systems sometimes a single payer. Uh, system, but but a system set up to make sure that healthcare is treated as a right, not a privilege. We in the United States have still not gotten there, and once we get there, that's the point where it becomes dramatically easier to regulate the pharmaceutical companies, the the uh, healthcare industry, and frankly, that's what we've got to get to. We can't continue to let a profit motive come ahead of human life, human safety. Uh, and just good health and a, and a good experience. Everybody get the book, Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers. That's right, board operator, get that today. Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers. That's what is happening right now. I love you, John Nichols, Dwight McKee, Attorney C.K. Hoffler. Reverend Stephen Thurston, what a great show. Board operator, you're the best. I love you, everybody. I love you, Anita. God bless you. Can't wait to be with you tomorrow on the Santita Jackson Show.